Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Tafera Talk. I'm Melissa Studdard and this is the Blog Talk Radio show for Tafera, the Journal of Spiritual Literature, where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now, and we would love for you to also join our global online community. You can find it at www.teferajournal.com. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own, you can subscribe to the journal, which in each issue presents beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's guest is William O'Daly. O'Daly is a board member of Poets Against War and co-founder of Copper Canyon Press. An NEA recipient and finalist for the Quill Award in Poetry, O'Daly is the translator of numerous poetry collections by the Nobel laureate Pablo Neruda, as well as the author of a chapbook of poems, The Whale and the Web, poems from both his own creative work and his translations, have been adapted for dance and stage performances and photo exhibitions, and he collaborates frequently with classical and jazz musicians in performance of his work. Most recently, O'Daly has completed two manuscripts, a full-length poetry collection and a collaborative novel with Han Ping Chen. Of O'Daly's translation of The Separate Rose, poet Sam Hamill states, in his brilliant translation of The Separate Rose, William O'Daly has rendered the wide range of expression that characterizes Neruda's orphic tongue and its two voices, one of temporality, oppression, and sadness, the other celebrating mystery and vitality. Hi, Bill. Can you hear me? I can, Melissa. Hello. Wonderful. Hello. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, I, I just wanted to start by letting you know that it's been such an honor to read your wonderful poetry manuscript, Slow Burn, and um, I wanted to see if you would tell our listeners about the title, which I know has special meaning for you, and your process of composing and compiling the poems, which relates, of course, to the title. Well, the, the title is from one of the poems in the manuscript called Slow Burn, and um, I wrote it actually quite a while ago and never sent it out to magazines. It was published in uh, 2012. It leads off the book after a, a poem that serves as a prologue which I also wrote quite a while ago. But the book is put together over quite a period of time, and my goal was to make it cohere as a single volume, um, one poem thematically flowing into the next, while still preserving uh, that long time frame. And so it, it feels to me uh, very much like a, a slow burn, like the, the <laughs> having done all that translation, uh, particularly of Neruda, and having uh, written uh, historical fiction and, um, you know, 
various essays and reviews and such, the poems developed very slowly. And um, uh, I think that primarily um, the, the next manuscript I do, I don't know quite how to put this, the next manuscript I do will be probably more typical of books of poetry that are, say, written over three or four years. But this right. book is written over 30. So. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That's so amazing. You know, I, I really wanted to, I was hoping you would tell us how, how many years it was written over because I think that's really inspiring for a lot of people um, because I think it is kind of, like you said, that you, you know a lot of people will be working on other things, whether it's novels or translations or um, even non-writing things, teaching, parenting, stuff like that, and just, you know, slowly, slowly building these these poems up over time. So that's a great inspiration. I'm kind of curious. Um, the next book you say will be more indicative of something that's written over a shorter period of time. Um, is that because those poems will actually be written in a three or four year period? So you're, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, are you um, producing more rapidly now? Um, I am in part because I'm, uh, I've put the translation on a back burner. I, I feel mm-hmm. that the eight books of Neruda that I did um, constituted the series. I feel finished. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, the historical novel, which took 15 years to compose with Han Ping Chin, um, that's finished, and we're sort of shopping it around. And um, I'm focusing primarily and almost exclusively, with, aside from some essays, um, on writing. I'm writing poetry, mm-hmm. and I have a, you know, a number of poems ready for the next manuscript, and I may go back a ways to, to grab others that didn't fit in slow mm-hmm. burn. But um, uh, the first time, I just spent so many years on Neruda, and it felt, as Neruda used to say, um, you know, he had this profound sense of duty when he wrote his poetry, and uh, many, there were many sources of my uh, desire to translate, particularly Neruda. But uh, uh, I also developed that sense of duty. I became uh, duty-bound to him, his late, late work and posthumous work, uh, and I just felt I needed to finish it. So the project uh, took on a life of its own and kind of uh, elbowed out my own work. Oh, well, I'm glad you're back to your own work now because it's wonderful. Um, and what a formidable contribution that's been with the Neruda, too. So um, it, it's it's great that you're moving on. And <laughs> well, thank you so much. I think they're, they're both, you know, the translation and the um, the writing are both such wonderful contributions. And I've seen where you've said in other interviews that the translation is for you a creative act. And um, I think that probably most translators, anybody who really knows about translation, um, feels that way as well. I, I was wondering if you would say a little more about that. Well, I, um, I came to poetry in part because of Neruda. There were a few poets um, back when I was 17, 18, that captured my attention. And uh, I walked into um, the bookstore at UC Santa Barbara where I was a freshman uh, one day, um, fairly early in my first quarter there, and found uh, Residence on Earth and by Neruda and was just blown away. Also his uh, 20 Love Poems and a Song of Despair. And I just couldn't put it down. Uh, the um, 
and you know the translations sometimes seem to work for me. Merwin's translations and Twenty Love Poems are were impeccable. Are impeccable. Um, I was having a little trouble with Residencia, but um, the, the poetry was so vital, and it's had such enormous amount of humanity and intelligence to it, and vulnerability as well. Uh, he kind of, you know, Naruto wore his uh, heart on his sleeve and uh, did it in incredible style. And there were other poets as well. Um, Kenneth Rexroth, who I ended up studying with, is a, was a huge translator, as well as a very prolific poet himself. And he, uh, I took a world poetry class from him once. He, by invi- it was an invitation-only class at his cottage in Montecito, and um, he told us, you, you young poets, you really need to translate. Uh, and he had all these reasons that all of which have come true. Um, you learn your own language better by translating from another. Uh, you get outside yourself. You aren't so bound within yourself. You expand your scope and your ear as a poet. And, uh, uh, but Philip, taking a workshop from Philip Levine three, four years after that, um, at Fresno, Cal State Fresno, he also he he said he, he said you know you guys you young poets you're so full of yourselves. I think the next <laughs> workshop, why don't you bring a translation? Don't bring one of your own poems. Bring a translation from any language and share it with us, and we'll, and we'll critique it. And that's when I um, picked up uh, Aoun, which I translated still another day, the first book of Neruda's I translated. Uh, sat down with the first poem and um, stumbled over the first four words and <laughs> worked my way through the poem. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I was going to ask you if you would read that poem tonight. I, you're talking about that? Oh, sure. Yeah, but I mean, if you were still talking, please finish what you're saying. I just, uh, <laughs> I want to make sure that we read, have you read that poem because it's wonderful. Oh, well. Uh, about translation, I go on and on. You're probably best off stopping me here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? I, I, I'll have to have you on another time because I do want to talk about translation a little bit more, but I want to focus more on your own poems, too, and your own work. So <laughs> let's oh. look at um, – let's have you read this uh, poem. And you have agreed so wonderfully to read it in both languages, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> okay. This is um, – Poem one from Still Another Day, Aoun in the original. And um, in this little book, uh, he, Neruda spent, actually he took a break from a book called World's End, which is a, his, only his second true full-length uh, book, um, a long poem that's a book. And um, he, he, was just, he was kind of a, a bit of a bitter book, and he wanted to take a break from it and write a farewell to Chile and to the Chilean people and to his readers worldwide because he knew he had a sense that he was dying. And um, so that's, that was the origins of the book. Poem one. Oyasel diamas. El que traía una desesperada claridad que murió. Que no lo sepan los agazapados. Toro debe quedar entre nosotros día, entre tu campana y mi secreto. Hoy es el ancho invierno de la comarca olvidada, que con una cruz en el mapa y un volcán en la nieve, 
Vieni a verme, a verme, a devolverme al agua, desplomada en el techo de mi infancia. Hoy cuando el sol comenzó, con sus espigas, a contar el relato más claro y más antiguo, como una semitarra cayó, la oblique la lluvia, la lluvia que agradece mi corazón amargo. Tú, mi bella, dormida aún en agosto, mi reina, mi mujer, mi extensión, geografía, peso de barro, citara que cubren los carbones, tú, vestidura de mi porfiado canto, Hoy otra vez renaces, y con el agua negra del cielo me confundes y me obligas. Debo reanudar mis huesos en tu reino. Debo aclarar aún mis deberes tres tres. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. Today is that day the day that carried a desperate light that since has died. Don't let the squatters know. Let's keep it all between us, day, between your bell and my secret. Today is dead winter in the forgotten land that comes to visit me with a cross on the map and a volcano in the snow to return to me, to return again the water fallen on the roof of my childhood. Today, when the sun began with its shafts to tell the story so clear, so old, the slanting rain fell like a sword, the rain my hard heart welcomes. You, my love, still asleep in August, my queen, my woman, my vastness, my geography, kiss of mud, the carbon-coated zither, you vestment of my persistent song, today you're reborn again, and with the sky's black water, confuse me and compel me. I must renew my bones in your kingdom. I must still uncloud my earthly duties. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. Those last Thank two you. lines are <laughs> just amazing. Um, you know, I realized why you were confused a minute ago because you sent the poem to me as the poem instead of the whole collection. <laughs> I actually thought the poem was I, not one, because it's the Roman numeral. <laughs> and I was trying oh. to figure out, why is this poem called I? It just doesn't really fit. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> um, so if I understand correctly, this is one of the first poems that you ever translated, or the first poem, is that right? Well, I um, several years before, I, I played with uh, Neruda poems. I, I tried some from uh, Residencia in La Tierra, and uh, uh, I even tried a love poem or two, tried a few of the odes, elemental odes, and um, I was just playing, you know, I was doing, I was just doing my practice as a poet. But that was the first poem that I translated with an eye toward actually um, translating an entire manuscript. 
and then but I still didn't intend to publish it you know I'm, I'm kind of slow sometimes I learn slowly and so it took about seven years to get the book right and um, mm-hmm. uh, you you might call it slow I call it patient <laughs> thank <very> you <laughs> true so that that's great um I know also, because you've spent so much time translating Neruda specifically, there there must be, um, I mean, just translating anyone, there is a kind of intimacy there that happens. There's, you know, you get to know the nuances of the poet, and um, you really kind of discover the contours of, of the mind, um, poetically anyway. And I was wondering, um, you know, do you feel that that has, translated into being present in your own work in a certain way? I mean, I know that your work is wholly your own, but, um, you know, what does that look like for you regarding Neruda? Do you see him sort of popping up and saying hello, (laughs) you know, in your own poems? Well, you know, I do, Melissa. um, My work is totally my own, uh, but that's in part because of Neruda. I had a dream once in, uh, when I was living in early years in Seattle, and um, I, I was you know, asleep, and um, suddenly this small boy uh, comes out of this open closet, and he's wearing a dark suit with a white shirt. I should say dark trousers with a white shirt, and his hair was all slicked back um, as they wore it in Neruda's day, and uh, he, there's no, he doesn't say anything and I don't say anything, and he reaches out and hands me this glass of water. And the water was just you know, iridescent. It was just gorgeous. And um, I, I um, almost started because I felt that I needed to grab it as quickly as possible so that he wouldn't have to hold it any longer. And, um, you know, it was intended for me. And over the years, that came to represent uh, the fact that Neruda was having a large role in giving me my own voice. Wow. Um, you know, a lot of people, like a W.S. Merwin, who's translated so much work, sounds only mm-hmm. like W.S. Merwin. So I think That's that translation, if, if it, you do it seriously, um, it'll have, actually have the, uh, uh, that as a benefit. Um, mm-hmm. And people don't expect that. Um, but uh, also... Uh, Neruda had worked his way into my system so uh, deeply that when I did my sixth book, had published it with Copper Canyon, a book of questions, uh, I couldn't really do much of anything else. I I felt bound, and part of that was I didn't realize, I found out 15 years later I wasn't finished with Neruda. There was that, but also I had to just readjust, reconstitute my um, emotional and intellectual self and so I spent a year at Northwest Actors Studio, not with any intention of becoming an actor. I hate auditioning. I just hate it. <laughs> but I uh, can't do it. But um, uh, just to reorganize my emotional self and make discoveries I needed to discover. So I, it's, it's, it's wonderfully insidious uh, translating someone over a period of time. Uh, and if you, especially if you share certain things uh, in your sensibilities with each other, which I've had, I don't know how many people tell me, I share with Neruda, um, you know, the natural world, and I don't know, various various attributes and various loves and passions. 
um, I like the way you described the the humanity of his work, and I I see that so much in yours too. But um, I I also see further things in yours that um, you know that are really really you, <laughs> and I see. Um, I mean, your poems cover so many different topics and themes, and but the thing that really sort of binds them for me is this really deep sense of connection and presence, and it feels really it feels almost like like all subject matter is sacred within your poems. Like the attention that you're giving to it makes it sacred. And, um, I think we may have lost your connection for a second on Mr. O'Daly. I'm sure she'll be right back with you. All righty. Thank you. Hey, you're very, very welcome. That happens sometimes on the interwebs when you're doing a broadcast um, live through Blog Talk Radio. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Melissa, you're back. Wonderful. I'll let you continue. Great interview. Continue. So strange. I could hear you both the whole time, but you couldn't hear me. Um, no. Okay. How much did you hear of my question? <laughs> Well, I think um, well, I, I didn't catch the last sentence or two, but I got a very good sense of it, uh, particularly when you were talking about how um, uh, my poems give a sense of all things being sacred. Did I understand mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, that's um, what I was saying. It feels like the, the, like the attention that you give to it in the poem makes it sacred. <laughs> right. Well, thank you. That's great. Um, you know, it's something I got from Rexroth in addition to a love of translation, uh, he turned me on to the Gnostics. He just reminded me of this. And, uh, 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 and so I, I studied them for a while and came across my favorite figure in uh, uh, Gnostic and Hellenistic mythology uh, by the name of Sophia, you know, which means wisdom. And she was the fem- feminine principle. And uh, she stood in companionship with uh, the masculine principle, uh, will, or free will, not free will necessarily, but what has been willed, I think, if I remember correctly. And um, in the story of her, you know, suffering through her process of um, uh, regaining the divine being, um, she had these sufferings. And... um, she worked with what would be a Christ figure. Um, I was raised Catholic, so I was I was familiar with some of this. Uh, but at any rate, um, uh, once she regained, you know, she went on her um, quest, spiritual quest, and regained oneness with the divine being. There's this wonderful story about how she and this Christ figure, who some people say she was a bride of, um, wanted to reclaim. Um, the spiritual energy of those sufferings. So together they turned her fear into um, water, her grief into air, uh, her confusion into earth, and her ignorance into fire. And with those elements, uh, the present universe was made. And I just love that story, and it made such an impact on me when I read it as a young man that um, I think it really fueled my in addition to my own connection to the natural world, uh, getting out of L.A. and going backpacking in the Southern Sierra every chance I got, uh, um, uh, I think that it, it helped inform my sense that um, 
all that's elemental has a sacredness to it. And you have to pay attention. You certainly have to pay attention on the trail when you're 30 miles out. And uh, um, I get that same feeling uh, hiking, backpacking, you know, being way out in the middle of nowhere and having no easy way out. I have that feeling when I write a poem now. I mean, it's, it's the most recognizable correlative, I guess you could call it, uh, that I have. I feel it. I feel it in your poems when I read them. That's amazing to hear kind of where that comes from. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I'm I'm actually delighted to announce that one of your poems in Slow Burn will be published in an upcoming issue of Teferit. Um, so we're really excited about that. And it's the poem Hestia, which is a meditation on womanhood and um, acknowledges the separate role of the goddess of the hearth from the rest of the Greek pantheon. I wanted to see if you would read that for us. Oh, certainly. Thank you. While you're pulling it up, I, I want to take a minute also to thank Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for coming on and helping me out when my phone cut out. <laughs> he's, he's always there. <laughs> okay, so I'm ready whenever you're ready to read. You're most welcome, Melissa. Oh, thanks. Hestia, what you create, the bad, the good, creates you, sowing the grace of song, but not like any god or goddess. You tend the kettle and have no time for the pantheon, or darkening blood, or available light, or gas lawn mower, or obsession, or uterus. A parallel life pressed against glass, hair pulled back, the loose strands like wild roots touch everything, your hands nothing, and the soul never again. It spreads like a bruise, like want, river or God, barnacle or bread, the first time we speak with the cloud, or like a moth burn in the sky. The lightning comes from behind, where the young discover their nakedness, depart and do not stop. The smile, the rancher, the slow dog, the horse tripped with a rope, the artless loon, the blind judge. We dream together alone, do not know or forget or cease, and gathering the seed of what's good for us, we let go. One night, late, in the rain and in the doorway, you will recognize this burning city as your own. I want to be with you, Hestia. Your soul, like a butterfly, chooses the transparent world, and you leave for it forever to feed the sun's hearth. Your body drips languor. You bleed and sweat and endure what directs or murders us all. This time, again, a woman is imprisoned in the gauze of selflessness. Your fire's light changes what remains, what we take, and only now learn how to give. Beautiful. What a rich poem. And I love the imagery. <laughs> um, Thank you. 
Now, it's interesting. I, I know this poem's about Hestia, I mean, obviously, but also um, I, I sense that presence of you that I was talking about very strongly in this poem, and I know that you said to some certain or small extent it explores your personal relationship to womanhood. Would you tell us more about that, about your connection to the subject matter? Um, well, the... the um I mean, you're absolutely right um, that, you know, first of all, I feel that each man has, you know, part of that feminine principle within him and uh, likewise women with the male masculine principle. And mm-hmm. um, I, um, you know, we, we guys, uh, we grow up with, uh, in part, with the idea of a woman as selfless creature. And that's, you know, twofold when, you know, um, um, has no selfishness and is meant to serve, you know, to mother, sometimes to smother, and, you know, um, to to take take care of us. And then there's that selflessness that is, um, I think, mostly negative, where, you know, a woman is not a fully formed self. And that goes back in, I don't know how many traditions, um, including uh, biblical and you even you see it in Buddhism at times, um, certain sects at any rate, and uh, that's what I I realized early on again as a freshman at UC Santa Barbara, where you know the um, uh, feminists would put would put together these rallies, and there'd be 250 women and six guys or seven guys, and I often was one of those guys, you know, and I, I began to realize that you know working for this cause. That is, you know, um, uh, an, a fuller understanding of womanhood and uh, allowing a woman to be a human being in the fullest sense, uh, and you know, would benefit everybody. That became so clear, um, and the particulars of it are complicated and and all. But that that was undeniable to me. And so, this poem, you know, Hestia being the goddess of the hearth, as you mentioned, and. Um, you know, not, not not playing the games that the rest of the gods used to play, you know, um, being all too human uh, much of the time. Uh, Hestia never participated in any of that. Um, uh, she um, she was, you know, always busy um, attending, but not actively necessarily. She was more of a, pr- a presence or a principle that was meant to model what it was to nurture. And... Um, so you know the Greek, the the, the fires, the, the the city, the central fire was always kept burning for her, and um, the first sacrifice in the home uh, was always uh, to Hestia, and um, but also you know again you know um, we have we're, t- we're speaking of a goddess here, but I wanted to bring that down to earth and somehow embody those uh, principles of Hestia in a, um, a character called Hestia, that came close to being human um, Mm -hmm. without giving Mm -hmm. up her her goddesshood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, it was interesting to hear you talk about your days at uh, UC Santa Barbara and the the rallies and all of that, because I did notice throughout your your collection so many poems um, dedicated to women, about women, and, you know, really concerned with, um, you know, what it means to to be a woman, or, you know, to things 
I think there was one poem where um, the daughter asks, is God a woman? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, I love that. <laughs> I love that. So, well, I want to ask you a question. When you were talking earlier about um, how long it took you to put together the, the first collection, and then you were talking after that about how there would be another collection, and you may choose some of the poems that you left out of that collection for the next one, and it, it just kind of occurred to me at that moment how difficult it must be to make decisions um, over poems written over such a long time period about what goes in and, and how things fit together and that sort of thing. So I just wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about what that, that process is like and how you made decisions about what to put in and what to leave out. Well, I was, um, first of all, I was, you were right. Um, it's very difficult, or it felt like it would be. And um, oddly enough, I'm, I've always been pretty good, even as an editor of uh, uh, Willow Springs at Eastern Washington University, I've been good at ordering things, sequencing poems and, mm. and various written works. Um, but I, I was fully expecting it to be an enormous struggle, and I gave it a lot of thought before I actually set out to do it. And then when I did it, um, it's, it's roughly 105 pages, 110 pages, um, I did it pretty much in an afternoon. <laughs> I, <laughs> and I, I can't even tell you why uh, I found it uh, to be not nearly as difficult as I expected. And then there are some poems, you know, the, um, the, the, we, all, we all have these poems that we, we love too much. Uh, we don't know, you know, maybe we love them for the wrong reasons. And like a few, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, but um, uh, there were a couple poems that I had uh, trouble letting go of until I did. It's like those two lines in a poem that you, you're, tr- you're struggling to get right, and of course they're your favorite lines in the poem, and you, get, uh-huh. you, you, you eject them from the poem, and suddenly the poem coheres, and it starts to sing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I can't say that the poems I let go are my favorite, but they're poems I ne- didn't want to give up on. But... Mm-hmm. Um, I think I pretty much have, and I'm better off for it. Certainly, the manuscript's better off for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and why? Why is the manuscript better off for those particular poems not being in it? I mean, what was it about them that, that made you not want to include them? They were really weak. <laughs> they oh. were just. That's very good. Yeah, they just never came together. They were, you know, they were, they, they, they were not embodied um i think they were they came there was a period actually where um after um i finished a book the book of questions the sixth book of neruda's and um started um working on my own poems again um there was a period where i really went way too much to my head i wasn't feeling i wasn't like being receptive, I was trying to create, which of course is what we, how, why, how, you know, why we invented the word contrivance. And there were things, <laughs> there were things in those poems that I care about deeply, but they will probably, and maybe they already have uh, found other poems uh, to live in, or you know, who knows? But um, that's that's pretty much why. 
Mm, okay, well, that, that's a really good reason. I was kind of imagining something else, like <laughs> them not fitting in the ordering or not fitting thematically, so <laughs> that's good. Um, it's also amazing to me how quickly you put it all together. <laughs> I remember, I can't remember if it was when I was interviewing him or if it was another interview I read with him, but um, when Ed Hirsch, I think, yeah, it was Ed Hirsch came out with his selected poems, um, like new and selected, and I asked him about the process. He said he was traumatized. <laughs> 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 and, and I just love that word in relation to it. So. And then to hear you, I mean, you know, it's different for everyone. You sit down in one afternoon and boom, there it is. <laughs> oh, I it, think I would be one of the traumatized variety. <laughs> so, you know, Ed's um, a wonderful poet, and uh, you know, I, I think we each have our strengths and um, but I've just always really loved, I, I, when I would do Willow Springs Magazine and we had made the final selection of all the work, poetry, fiction, artwork, uh, essays, reviews, etc., I had a fantastic time laying everything out on my living room floor and then walking around and picking them up and, de- and deciding what order they'd be. And it was just like fun, so fun. Wow. And I've always, <laughs> what a <good. laughs> That's wonderful. Um, you know, I'm surprised to say that we, we only have about seven minutes left and there are still, there are like ten more things I want to ask you, but I'm going to kind of narrow it down to two. <laughs> and um, I, one of the things that I wanted to ask is that it was such a pleasure to read your essay, Creative Collisions, Poetry as a Tr- Transformative Act. And in there you say, you have this wonderful um, phrase, or quote, you say, poetry is born of an individual commitment to living consciously, succeeding and failing, discovering and reclaiming and giving in a committed way and inviting dreams and the dreams of others to speak with us. And um, I love that that statement. Um, and I find myself, especially after hearing you talk about the dream of Neruda, um, just wanting to ask you, you know, kind of in a more detailed or specific way, what it means to you to invite those dreams in through poetry. I mean, do do you actually, like, keep a dream journal or, you know, how does that work for you personally? Um, Well, I've I've never kept a dream journal per se. I have always kept, well, after age 16 or so, uh, I've always kept journals. And sometimes I write in them every day, and other times, I mean, I won't go back to them for months and months. Um, just maybe, you know, perhaps letting what it is I've recorded in them um, gestate and find their own relationships. But I, because I'm, you know, early, early on, I was a very reticent poet, um, and because you know I've made my living quite a bit as an editor. That's you know, part of what I've done, uh, literary and technical editor. Uh, sometimes my mind works overtime and gets out in front of me. So my particular um, path as a poet has um, been strewn with uh, the lesson, you know, the karma that I, you know, I had to deal with, and that is um, becoming more receptive and less uh, in a mode where, um, I'll put it this way, where I do more composing out of receptivity than I do um, deciding what I want to write about and um, deciding what it is I will say. And so um, I've worked really, really hard at that. 
and um, you know the, the stint at the Northwest Actors Studio was to do, uh, to break myself down essentially, mm, and wow. um, right. you know it, <laughs> that's that kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Wonderful. Um, the other thing that that really struck me about your work overall is that um, it just seems to me that collaboration is so important to you. I mean, you've done the collaborative novel. You've um, you, you know had your work adapted for dance and stage performances and photo exhibits, and you collaborate with the classical and jazz musicians to perform your work. And I'm just kind of, and even translation is a form of collaboration, <laughs> you know. So I'm wondering what, you know, what, what drew you to this as a way of, um, you know, being in the arts, I guess. Well, it was, I think primarily it was... Um, each of those individual activities more than um, even an, an overt desire to collaborate. It was, mm-hmm. I, well, I want to translate. I really, really want to translate. And when I started doing it, uh, you know, writing is such a lonely, lonely task, or it should be at any rate. Uh, you know, Alan Watts talks about the need for the cycle of immersion and isolation. And maybe today a lot of us aren't getting enough isolation. Uh, we're so connected that things don't have, really have a chance to gestate as they should. Um, but um, that, that, um, there was that strong connectivity built up over a period of time with Neruda's work. And I ended up enjoying that immensely and with who Neruda uh, was. Um, mm-hmm. And without thinking about it as a collaboration, of course, you're right. It totally is. Um, with the musicians, you know, listening to uh, Rex Roth perform with uh, jazz musicians and uh, with Sakuhachi flute, for instance, uh, that, I, that just took me to a whole other plane. It was um, sublime. And so I've really enjoyed working. I've done that myself, and I've thought, you know, well, what benefit does this have to me, you know, um, to my poetry, and I, I realize, well, you know, it's awakening me to all these possibilities of rhythm and tone and uh, various things. Mm, so, wonderful. Oh, did you have more you wanted to say? Well, I, um, I, I know we're short on time, but um, I, uh, uh, the, and also hearing musicians do my work has been outrageously wonderful. Um, uh, the group, uh, jazz and R&B group four, which these guys are 17, now 18 to 19 years old. They mm-hmm. are incredibly talented. I've performed with one of them and two of them before, and now there's a band called Four Four, uh, lowercase Roman numerals, eyes <laughs> uh, uh, and. Uh, or ones actually, and um, they uh, and they've turned one of my uh, poems, "Our Names Are Turning After Rain," into lyrics. A song that's on their debut album, and just listening to that, uh, sung by uh, Lila Smith, um, um, it just you know, I, I began to hear it in a whole new way, and that poem's been around for a long time. So, you know, the more the more collaboration I do, the more I discover about my work, myself, uh, the more fun I have, and audiences uh, tend to really enjoy it. They like these collaborative, multidisciplinary events. 
Wonderful. Um, I, I want to say really quickly before I ask you the last question that I, I think we're going to get cut off. So anyone who's listening live, um, it, it will cut off, but it will actually be recorded. So can actually there will be just a little bit more at the end with announcements about upcoming events and stuff. So when we get cut off, you can go back and listen to the recorded part. And most people listen recorded anyway. So um, Bill, I, just, I want to ask you in closing, is there anything that you would like to announce, like any upcoming events or um, publications or you know, something, you know, a website you want to point people to, just something so we can continue to follow you? Well, um, um the manuscript is at Copper Canyon. I'm hoping they'll publish it. Um, and um, slow burn. And right now, you know, I have poems coming out in various magazines. But maybe the best thing with this time is to um, actually uh, in Berkeley at Jazz School, uh, which is across the street from Freight and Salvage, the great blues, R&B, etc. Uh, uh, concert venue. Uh, on May 31st at 8 o'clock in the evening, I'll be performing with the group for um, Paul Bloom, Lila Smith, Jeremy Dutton, and Connor Schultze. And uh, we'll be doing poetry and jazz there, May 31st at 8 o'clock in the evening in Berkeley at Jazz School. Mm, that sounds wonderful. It makes me wish I were there. <laughs> uh, well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so, so much. And um, I just wish you the best of luck with the, the manuscript and can't wait to, to hold that in my hands as a book. <laughs> Thank you so much, Melissa. It's been my pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you. Before we close, I'd like to remind our listeners that at our website, www.teferajournal.com, you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of Teferit Journal, and find out about upcoming events such as Hay House's San Francisco Writers' Workshop, March 22nd to 24th, with Doreen Virtue, Reed Tracy, and Nancy Levin. While you're at the site, be sure to also check out the new Teferit Talk book. It's a collection of our best interviews from the first year of the Ferret Talk Radio and is available for purchase at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other bookstores, as well as at the website where we offer a free copy monthly through our giveaway. I'd like to thank Teferit publisher Donna Berstein, producer and associate editor R.J. Jeffries, and contributing editor and assistant producer Udo Hintz for their work every month in helping the show to run smoothly. Our next interview will be March 11th with novelist Caroline Levitt. We hope you'll join us then, and in the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness, and fulfilling work. Until then, goodbye.